You know, it's been a few Sundays ago now, but a few Sundays ago, <laughs> I confess with you to be patient with your pastor's weaknesses, and apparently I just discovered that one of them is opening up to the Gospel of Mark, looking at the word Mark and calling it Matthew. Uh, so that is a new weakness for me. I didn't realize I had that one, so I'll just add that one to the list. So if you would... <laughs> So if you would, open up the book of Revelation. We're going to look at 1 Timothy. I'm kidding. 1 Timothy chapter 6 is where we are this morning. <clears throat> I love that song uh, that we just sang, Nothing But the Blood of Jesus. I love its simplicity because it's reminding us of the reality uh, that there is one thing that is the remedy to life. And sometimes people call it cliche, well, we're just, we're just washed in the blood. But it, when we sing that song, it should invigorate us that what is, you know, the Heidelberg Catechism, what is our only hope in life and death? Our only hope in life and death is Jesus Christ in body and soul. And what is integral to Jesus being our only hope is the blood shed. And this morning, as we're working our way, we begin this final chapter of the book of First Timothy. He's addressing uh, different things, but it kind of brought me back around to the notion of contentment. In fact, if you pay attention to the back of your bulletin, the title was Content in a World of Greed. And this place of being satisfied and finding rest in the truths and realities of the gospel. Well, foundational to that is the blood of Christ. So if there is no blood of Christ, there is no gospel. So we have to have the blood of Christ to begin, to begin the building blocks. Well, the incarnation, let's start there. The incarnation is one foundational stone, and built upon that is the crucifixion and the resurrection and the ascension and then the continued ministry of the Holy Spirit. But let's call it the mortar that binds all those blocks together is the blood of Jesus Christ because it's the blood that washes us. It's the blood that covers us. It's the blood that renews us and makes us white as snow. And so as we think about life, we understand that the blood of Christ is central. Well, this morning, Paul's continuing. He's been giving instructions to the church, and he's been talking about how we treat different segments of people, and we're going to finish out that, but also look at Paul's instructions again. How important was it to address false teachers for Paul? So important that he's going to do it again but this time in a little bit different vein, coming at it from a, a, the standpoint of greed versus contentment. And so that's where we are this morning, 1 Timothy chapter 6. We're going to read the first 10 verses together, so follow along with me if you will. 1 Timothy chapter 6, starting in verse 1. Beloved of God, this is God's infallible and errant word. Let all who are under a yoke, of, or under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. 
But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. So ends the reading of God's Word. May He add His blessing. Please pray with me. Father, we thank You for Your Word this morning and its power and its capacity and ability to pierce right to the very heart of the issue. May it pierce us, I pray, with its truth and goodness and correction, conviction, and encouragement, and may we be transformed by it. It's through Christ we pray. Amen. How often have you heard or uttered the phrase, sleep like a baby? Perhaps you've said it yourself in how you sleep, or you wish you could sleep like that, or you tried to contact someone and they they slept like a baby through that storm. Well, if you ever see a baby sleep, if you ever see a baby sleep, you know why the cliche is common. Because babies sleep in their infancy, most of them, in their infancy, sleep soundly. And the reason being is because they don't have a care in the world. There is no burden. There is no stress. There is no life coming at them. There is eat and sleep. And so if they eat, they sleep. And I'm going to say mostly because we understand that sometimes it doesn't work out that way when you really, really want it to. But if they're fed and they feel secure, babies will generally sleep soundly and contentedly because of the fact that their needs are met. Those are the needs that they, they have, to be fed and to feel secure. And when they have that, usually they're relatively calm. But when we, when we sum that word up, when we sum that idea up, what is key there is contentment. Babies are content. And so there's no need to be awake or upset. And they have this deep rest because they enjoy the fruit of deep satisfaction. So deeply, they deep, rest deeply because they are deeply satisfied. And that, that'll preach, right? That, that concept goes on. And so that notion should be more common in Christians, more common in us, that God's provision in our lives should produce that type of deep satisfaction that leads to deep rest because God is faithful to give us what we need. We live in a world, you and I, you and me, we do, we live in a world that prizes and rewards greed, It prizes and rewards greed. If you think about it, more is the mantra of the world that we live in. Well, we need to understand that in Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, Paul calls greed exactly what it is. It's idolatry. The world is pushing an idol onto humanity so that we worship at the altar of greed. We worship at the altar of more. We worship at the altar of dissatisfaction. And I'll tell you why, and I'll come back around to this later, because that sells, and it sells a lot, and it sells well. The world always says there's room for more. There's room for more. You can have more. You should get more. You can't be happy if you settle. You can't be happy if you're happy with your place in life, that you need more, and if you're not going for more, you're settling. Well, so often that word they use for settling in Christian Uh, language would be called contentment. Maybe I'm not settling, brother. Maybe I'm just happy with where I am. Maybe I like my life the way it is, and so this is not me settling. This is me choosing to be grateful for what I have and live within those means. That is lost on the world at large. 
The world has no category for a contented poor person because the world fails to understand that contentment is a perspective of mind and heart and not a circumstance. That contentment is a perspective of mind and heart and not of circumstance. It's a choice that we make. It's a choice that we make to be happy, to be satisfied. Let's use that word. It's a little bit more biblical. To be satisfied with the way things are and where I am in life. Contentment is the choice that we make when we make the conclusion, God is enough. God is enough. Now, I want to give my caveat here. This does not mean aspirations or even, you know, some types of ambition are wrong. It's not saying that. It's not wrong to have aspirations. It's not wrong to have desires. It's not wrong to want to see and grow and do better. That's not what the point is. What it does mean, though, is those desires, those ambitions, those aspirations are submitted to God, that those are not just me operating out of my own strength and my own desire, but I am submitting those things to God and asking God to lead me in these and to, for God to, be, to reign and be sovereign over these. And it means that when we're contented that we rejoice in what God gives, not grumble about what we don't have. A small example of this is when Joel and I, it's been a year ago now, we're in Washington, D.C. at Capitol Hill Baptist Church. Somebody was asking Mark Dever about the different types of diversity he had in his church. And his response just did my heart good. He said, I'm not really worried about all that. We are just grateful for the people that God brings to us that we can minister to. And it's this just this notion that we can grumble about what we don't have, to what end? Or we can pause to say, thank you for what I do have. And perhaps that's what you're using in my life to get me to where I need to go. So whether it's station, whether it's status, whether it's salary, God is sovereign, and he's put us in the place where we are because that's where he's going to do his best work. Things change. Seasons come and go. I'm not saying it'll always be that way, but if we are, if we are able to focus on God in a season and be grateful despite our hardships, beloved of God, we are understanding what it means to find contentment in a world that is constantly trying to tear that contentment away and just fan into flames these desires for, I have to have more. It's okay, and I would even say it's right. If you were in hard circumstances, pray, God, deliver me. Deliver me from these. Please change my circumstances. God, yes, please bless our family or, or us with more provision. Those prayers are good and right. But... At the same time, we must be grateful for God's provision and trust He is leading us right where we need to be, right on the path that we need to be on, and the end of it is going to be His good and perfect blessing and will, no matter what it looks like to us in a moment. And so when those, with those thoughts in mind, there's one idea I want for us to see this morning. It's this, that contentment and godliness are our weapons against indulgence. And we could even say against indulgence and greed. That contentment and godliness are our weapons against indulgence and greed. When we think about the many gifts that Jesus has given us, and he's given us spiritual gifts, he's given us the gift of his presence, but one of the gifts that Christ gives Christians, people who profess his name, is the gift of satisfaction. We have the choice to be satisfied in Christ or not. Now, I'm not saying it's always the easy choice. I'm not saying it's always the fun choice. 
But I am saying he has given us, by means of his gospel, the capacity to choose satisfaction rather than dissatisfaction. And so the Christian is called to be content or satisfied. Either one of those words work. The Christian is called to be content or satisfied in Christ, right? Not circumstances. In Christ, the one who is forever and who never changes, who is perfectly righteous, perfectly good, perfectly loving, perfectly just, who rules perfectly to find our contentment in him and not in the present circumstance that I'm in. Now, I'm not saying that lightly. I'm really not. Because some of the circumstances we find ourselves in seem overwhelming. In fact, they seem uh, that we're never going to get out of it. And sometimes those seasons are long. But what the devil wants to do is get you focused on how you're losing instead of how seeing you're winning in Christ. And beloved, this is where we as Christians, even through the valley of the shadow, we have the capacity to find our satisfaction in the Lord even when it hurts. And it hurts sometimes. And so that produces lament. And in our lament, we can come back around to the goodness of God again and again and feed ourselves on the goodness of God through His Word and remind ourselves, I'm not alone. God has a plan. God is leading me. I will, be, I will get to a, a, a fair shore, a good end. And so when we come to this text that we're in, Paul is dealing with contentment on two different levels. One, after he addresses the slaves, but two, firstly, with the slaves to some degree. But I find it interesting. The ESV uses the word bondservants, and you can use that word. It is technically a word, but more typically doulos in Scripture is understood as slave. Now, when we look at the ancient world, their practice of slavery, there were different levels. There were outright slaves, usually captured peoples who were brought into the kingdom as slaves to work as slaves. Uh, Think of someone like uh, Joseph. And in the very ancient world, but the Rome would conquer or would conquer peoples and then enslave them. And then there were kind of bond servants, people who enslaved themselves as a means of finance to get financial gain, so that they could get themselves out of a hard situation. When Paul addresses it here, he's talking about anybody who's in this place of subjugation. You're subjugated to another person. You're under the rule of another person. So that's what we're dealing with first: these slaves. But look, I want you to notice in Timothy. They get the same respect as widows and elders and deacons. There's a proper way. Paul expects them to be men and women of honor, men and women of integrity, even in their low station. So there is a proper way for them to live. And I also want to say something here and now because it's, it's worth saying. Paul is not addressing the morality or immorality of slavery. He's not, that's not his point here. Paul is not condoning it simply by his silence, because I'm going to point something out here in just a minute. Paul is talking about an, an ancient world reality that was just a reality. Some historians estimate that up to a third of the population in Rome at its peak were slaves. You're talking about every third person in Rome was an enslaved person. And so you had a social system built off the backs of these people that was corrupt and awful and immoral, And yet Paul is saying, yet here we are, this is the practice, so how can we, even in our slavery, glorify Christ? That's the question he's painting. How even in our low station, even in our place of subjugation, how can we be faithful in that station to glorify Christ and to be content with where the Lord has put me in this moment? So 
So how do we know Paul's attitude about this? Well, he says, let all who are under a yoke as slaves or bondservants. So when he speaks of them as being under a yoke, what he's doing, sometimes that word yoke is used positively, i.e. what we talked about last Sunday where take my yoke upon you. When Paul uses it here, it is not a compliment because he's taken animal husbandry language and he's applying it to human beings. So he's letting you know right there by this little phrase, under a yoke of slavery, not just people who are enslaved, but under a yoke, that he views this negatively. And yet, it's the practice of the ancient world. So he's saying, this is the system we're in. He was not called to be a political activist. He was called to speak gospel truth to people at whatever place they were in life. So he's speaking very graphically talking about one who is controlled by another. Now, that's not even the most startling thing to me. The most startling thing to me is he says, regard their own masters as worthy of all honor so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Now, I want to point out something to you. Paul doesn't say slaves serve good masters well. Paul doesn't say make your service contingent on how well the person who's enslaved you, treats you. Paul is saying, honor them in their station. Whether they're good, whether they're bad, honor them. And in so doing, you're going to do something. You're going to bring honor to the name of God because they're going to see something in your character. Again, I want to go back to Joseph. Joseph was enslaved and imprisoned and mistreated, and yet at every single stop, when he knows he's being mistreated, he knows it's unjust, what does he do? He serves the Lord with honor. And what does God do? God blesses him. So Paul is calling people who are in this particular position to seek to live their lives honoring the Lord by being faithful, by being men and women of integrity, by being people who can be trusted, by serving with excellence. Because Paul's point is, and this is me this is my application, that when people see the character of God in somebody, someone who is willing to be honorable in situations that are hard, perhaps it raises the question, what makes you different from this one? And it gives them the opportunity to share the gospel. So that's the first verse. The first verse kind of says, all right, here's a general principle truism. This is what generally should happen. Now, then Paul adds a caveat, verse 2. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better since, they, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. So, respect believing masters basically all the more. Now, the question is, is if you have a, an enslaved Christian and a person who happens to be their master is a Christian, why would Paul need to encourage a slave to respect a brother in the Lord. Well, that's because Paul understands human nature, and he understands that the human tendency would be, hey, well, you're a Christian, I'm a Christian, you're going to cut me some slack because you have to be gracious to me. You have to love me. You have to, have to, have to. And so Paul is saying, don't give in to that temptation. If they are a brother or sister, serve them all the more. Don't use your shared faith as an excuse to be a poor laborer. Be a rich blessing. And here's why. Because this is a believer. This is a beloved. Why not help them benefit if you can since you are also a believer and a beloved? Make no mistake, 
both master and slave here are believer and beloved. Neither one is, is worth any less in the sight of God. And the way we know that is because Paul again would tell Galatians, in God's sight with regards to salvation, there is no slave or free. You are all equal in your need for the gospel and equal in your righteousness before the Lord. But when you look at this, yeah, it's unpalatable. I'll be honest with you. I didn't, I didn't love having to preach on slavery this morning. But there is a principle here that I think we should grasp that, that kind of goes beyond just slavery, slaves and masters or servants and masters, is that what Paul is painting here should be our posture toward all Christians. This is as we, as we live our lives, that notion of honor and work for your good and be excellent with you should be how we interact with every, each one of us. That should be our, our natural disposition toward our brothers and sisters, what Paul is laying out here. Because Paul is trying to give us what Paul is trying to give us what biblical Christian community looks like. This is what it should be. And the reason we have these expressed commands and instruction in the Bible is because sin tempts us to not do it that way. And so we constantly come back around to the truth. He says here, he, he ends verse 2, or the ESV tags it on the beginning of verse 3, teach and urge these things. Well, I think that's the final sum. Those are two express commands, teach and urge, two express commands to Timothy. I think that's the final summation starting in chapter 5, verse 1, at the end of 6, verse 2. Is he was given the instructions to the church saying, hey, basically, here's the theme of the, the pastoral epistles, all three of them, faithfulness. Be faithful. Be faithful if you're an elder. Be faithful if you're a widow. Be faithful if you're a deacon. Be faithful if you're a bondservant or slave. Be faithful if you're in the position of being a master over someone. It's this notion that Christian community should be marked by its faithfulness. And when it is, it stands out. Well, Paul continues here, and this is where he gets on the other aspect of contentment. So contentment, hey, be satisfied with the Lord in your position and seek to honor His name. That's what he would say to the bondservants or slaves. Now he comes back around here. So this is a, another opportunity to not give in to something that is false and choose contentment. He says, if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. So right here, it teaches a different doctrine. The word, the, the, the word for that is heterodoxy, which is other doctrine. And what Paul says, if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with, the, uh, he then gives his, his sentence, he's puffed up with conceit, understands nothing. Now, I'll just stop right there for a second. So what Paul is doing here, I just read you three verses, that heterodoxy or other doctrine, what it does, its primary thing, it does two things. It demeans the word of Christ, which is what he says here, does not agree with the sound teaching or the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and it demeans godliness and faithfulness. It does not promote a sense of I should be godly or I should be faithful. What false teaching does 
It promotes a sense of, I do what I will to get what I want so that I can be happy. It's supreme selfishness, right? So not faithfulness, selfishness. So he says this, this other teaching, this different doctrine, and th- that demeans the word of Christ, it discourages faithfulness, and the fruit of that is arrogance. The fruit of that is a, an arrogance, a, 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 he calls it puffed up, conceit. And that arrogance and conceit, the fruit of that is someone who now shows themselves to lack understanding, to lack any sense of what is true and right and good and beautiful. And then what is the fruit of that? Well, when you get to that point, you've gotten to a place of ignorance, and now it's more important for you to start craving disputes, quibbles over words, disputes that don't matter. He says here, an unhealthy craving for controversy and quarrels about words, which produce what? Envy, dissension, slander, and evil, and suspicions, and constant friction among people. I'll stop right there. So when you, hear, when you hear these words, hear these words here, envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, you're starting to hear words that are the very opposite of the fruit of the Spirit that Paul gives us in Galatians 5. In fact, what you're hearing there is that this false teaching can only produce the works of the flesh. Because why? Because there is no Holy Spirit in it. They can't produce fruits of the Spirit if there is no Holy Spirit in it. That is why Paul takes false teaching so seriously because it's so easy for humans to get off track. If Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, that is a very set pathway. And if teachers come in and say, well, you don't really have to do this and that, and it's okay to enrich yourself at the expense of others because it's all about you being happy. But he talks about them in this way, the constant friction among people, he says, depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. Very, very important because these are people who he now, if we were to translate this this way, who are bent on evil with no truth. Bent on evil with no truth. And evil is not always Sauron, right? Evil is not always the big bad wolf. Evil is not always the, the, the vampire who's visibly dark. Sometimes evil comes with a smile. Sometimes evil comes with a kiss. Sometimes evil comes with an embrace. Sometimes evil comes with a, did God really say? Did God really say? Well, he just knows that you'll be like this. Evil does not always look evil. Sometimes it sounds right to our ears. Why do we need Scripture constantly? Because God and the Holy Spirit know how evil can deceive, and they've printed the truth and word for us so that we can come back and test what is right and good by the Word of God. So they're deprived, they're depraved of mind, they're deprived of the truth. And he, this is where it comes to the culmination and imagining that godliness is a means of gain. And so basically, what is Paul saying? Lord, they're using religion to get rich. They're using religious and their rhetoric to get rich. Have we ever seen that before? We have. You know, one of the most lucrative practices in the world today is forming a cult. You want to get rich? Form a cult. And dupe the masses. 
I mean, prosperity preachers didn't just dream this stuff up out of the blue one day. There's a blueprint for this throughout history about taking religion and twisting it into something that is now a means of personal gain instead of a service to God's people. In other words, they are driven by greed. They use lies to scheme for more and more, and Paul calls them evil. That's the sum of what Paul is saying here. They are depraved of mind and deprived of the truth. That is no slight accusation, or let's say sentence. Because Paul is saying those who peddle this are evil. So if that's true, then what is the real value? Where is the real value found? Verse 6, but godliness with contentment. Now notice he qualifies godliness. He's just used it, so he's now doing a play on ideas. Imagine that godliness is a means of gain, but godliness with contentment is great gain. But you have the qualifier, contentment. For we brought nothing into the world, and we, can, we can't take anything out of it. But if we have food and, clo- food and clothing, with these we will be content. So the real value is in godliness with contentment. Godliness that produces a real satisfaction in Christ. Godliness that leads to a real rest in Christ. And I love how Paul entitles the, or, or, or qualifies this. He says, for we came into the world or we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. He's kind of playing on Job a little bit. For naked I came into the world and naked I will return. But what is he saying? He's saying there is no, there's no, there's no uh, lane to entitlement here because you came in the world with nothing. You came in the world, you and I did, purely as a, as a fruit of the creative work of God. When we leave this world, we're not taking anything with us. We will stand before the creator of all things laid bare with only the blood of Christ or no between us. And so there is no room for entitlement in, in humanity any, any, anywhere, but especially Christians, because we understand that we are what we are because of Christ. We have what we have because of Christ. We will live how we'll live because of Christ. And then he goes one step further about talking about being content with food and clothing. Here, he's channeling Jesus from Matthew 6, and it's actually from Matthew, not Mark. He's channeling Jesus, who says, you don't have to pray and go nuts to to God in prayer. The, The Father knows what you need, and He will graciously provide them to you. So Paul is reminding us here, That the great gain of godliness, that godliness, faithfulness to Christ, living out the precepts of God, the the way that we have great gain in that is with contentment, with that satisfaction of we are God's and God will care for us. When we think about Matthew 6 and about how it applies here, this is where building off the Lord's Prayer, Jesus does give us our our daily bread, and that's more than a loaf of bread. That's more than than a meal at a time. That's the things that we need to live for Him in a world that is lost and broken. And so Paul is inviting us in to say, be content. It's not easy. It's not fun. It's going to be a hard prospect. But that is our call as Christians. And as the world continues to go on its present trajectory, it's going to be even more of a struggle to find contentment But beloved of God, if we are keeping our focus on on Christ, walking under the leadership of the Holy Spirit, contentment is possible. In fact, it's not possible. It is. 
He brings this, this paragraph to, to an end by those who desire to be rich, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. So when you see that desire for wealth there, uh, for those who desire to be rich, don't think of, um, well, covetousness. That's really what Paul is, is dealing with here covetousness. Not just, hey, I would like to advance in the world, but I have to have more and more and more. And even envy when people get more that you don't get. I have to have more because I need more because I can't do without more. And when we get into that mindset, it invites in this temptation. The temptation is to let go of integrity, to let go of righteousness, to let go of truth, And once we fall into that temptation, it's into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. So in the Lord's Prayer, we actually pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil or from the evil one. What does covetousness do? It leads us into temptation, into the snares of the evil one. That is why contentment is so important, because it it invites this temptation, it invites this snare that would ultimately separate one from Christ. The desires that lead to death and ruin, ruin and destruction, he says, that just sink or plunge humanity further away from God. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. One of the most misquoted verses in the Bible. One of the most misquoted verses in the Bible. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Now, you, are, you have a, a question here. Some translations, yours may read, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, or for the love of money is the root of all evil, or for the love of money is a root of all evils or all kinds of evils. Now, why the debate? Well, because some people think it should be the root, even though the word the is not in the original text. But sometimes in Greek, you can supply the definite article contextually if, it, if it's right in the context. In this particular sentence, that definite article isn't there. And I think it's not there on purpose. I think the ESV is absolutely right to translate it as a root, because Paul is not trying to say every form of evil is from the love of money. He's trying to say of all the evils in the world, the love of money is a root of all evils, is, is one of the roots of all evils. And so he's getting at how important it is that we understand that to say to be a lover of money over all things is not a light thing. It is going to not just be your love for money, but then what's going to happen is a manner of all other evils are going to spring up in your life and begin to cr- choke you out, crowd you out, take away your life, and be a detriment to others. So it robs one of faith, and it introduces all manner of pain because of this idolatry. Beloved, here's where we have to stand, all of us. We can't, we can't just decide to mix a little idolatry with our Christianity. That's exactly what the Israelites tried to do. It's called syncretism. No, no, no. Christ's call is exclusive. We will be satisfied in Him. We will be content in Him. How do we fight that idolatry? How do we fight that push for more and more and more and more, that greed, that willing to step on our brothers and sisters' neck, neck if we can get ahead? We do it with the power of Christ in us as we fight idolatry by choosing contentment, or godliness rather, with contentment, because the Spirit is working that in us. Satan's lie. He did it to Eve. 
He does it to you. He does it to me. You need more. You need more. What is Jesus' proclamation? I am. And so I am enough. In the face of you need more, you remember I am Jesus, and he is enough. Satisfaction in Christ is our great weapon against greed, beloved. The devil and the world play on the dissatisfaction of humanity by constantly telling us about what we don't have or about why you need a better 1X than you do have. And we will give in to it. That dissatisfaction, if you watch TV any amount of time, it sells cars, it sells clothes, it sells, sells the next food rage, it sells entertainment, it sells all kinds of cosmetic stuff, it sells all manner of things because when you create a dissatisfaction, you've just created a quote-unquote need. And when you create a need, that need has to be filled. And then once you fill that need, here's the trick. You fill it with this thing, and then the people who are filling it come back and say, well, that one's not good enough anymore, now you need this one. And it never stops. It never, ever stops. And so the call for us is in our call to godliness, Jesus calls us to rest and be satisfied in Him. If we were to sum that up in one word, it's contentment. So many of the issues in our lives, they stem from our own inability or, or own unwillingness to be satisfied in Christ no matter the circumstances. When I wrote that down, I wrote that for me. This is one reason the biblical writers remind us that we can have joy and lament. Because even in our pain, in our deepest, darkest pain, we can be content in the Christ who says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. He told his disciples, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. Let's pray. Father, thank you for that rich gift, that truth. Thank you for that mercy. Oh, Father, help us. Forgive us that we don't often choose contentment in a moment. We choose more. We choose greed. We choose to be dissatisfied, and we listen to those voices that would tell us about what we don't have instead of being grateful for what we do. Oh, Father, put it on our hearts and minds that this day and every day to pause and say thank you for what we do have. Father, help us to be grateful, for in that, contentment flows. And so, Father, we love you. Thank you. I thank you that you don't give up on us. Thank you that you pursue us when we try to stray. Thank you that we can be content in you. It's through Christ we pray. Amen.